Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and you can find me at live2110.com. And you can find this video podcast on the YouTube channel, Wendy Live to 110, or on the corresponding blog post. Today, we are interviewing Nicolette Han Nyman of Nyman Ranch. You may be familiar with that if you're in the paleo sphere and like to eat healthy meat. Uh, she is the author of Defending Beef and used to be an environmental attorney. And she has a lot of really interesting information about how beef is healthy for us and how beef does not cause disease and how beef does not also cause global warming or other environmental issues. And uh, she's very, very well-spoken and educated and has definitely has done her homework and research. So enjoy this one. It's a really, really good podcast. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is for informational purposes only, so please do not attempt anything that we suggest on the show today. Our guest, Nicolette Hahn Nyman, is an environmental advocate, cattle rancher, and author of Defending Beef. She previously served as a senior attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance, running their campaign to reform the concentrated production of livestock and poultry. In recent years, she's gained a national reputation as an advocate for sustainable food production and improved animal welfare. She is the author of Righteous Pork Shop from HarperCollins in 2009 and has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, and The Atlantic Online. She lives on a ranch in Northern California with her husband, Bill Nyman, and their two sons. Nicolette, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be running a cattle ranch? Okay, well, uh, I wouldn't say I run it. Yeah. <laughs> or own one. <laughs> but I, I'm involved in the running. Yeah. My husband would definitely object if I said I run it. Um <laughs> So I have kind of I have kind of an unusual pathway that got me here. So um, I was I'm from Michigan and I grew up there and was uh, one of those kids who spent a lot of times outdoors. So I, you know, just loved nature and, and was really interested in in biology and how how things work. And when I went to college, I majored in biology and then I went to law school and became a lawyer. And I was practicing law for about seven years before I started working for environmental organizations. First, I worked for National Wildlife Federation. And then I was hired from there by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's an environmental attorney and the son of the late Robert F. Kennedy. And he, um, he, he runs a group called Waterkeeper Alliance. And he asked me to begin working exclusively on the issue of pollution from the livestock and poultry industry, because this is a huge problem um, all over the United States. And it wasn't really being addressed. This was back in 2000. So things are a little bit different now, but especially at that time, there was very little being done on this. And so that actually became my full-time job. And I worked exclusively on this issue of um, sort of environmental problems related to livestock and poultry production for two years. And during that work, I met Bill Nyman, who is the founder of a, of a network of hundreds of traditional farmers and ranchers who have their animals mostly on grass, and all of them are um, in sort of very uh, optimal environments for for their welfare and environmentally. And, and I started using the Nyman Ranch Network as a model of good uh, livestock husbandry. And then 
eventually I got to know Bill Nyman, the founder, better and better and better. <laughs> and then we got married. <laughs> and so um, about a yeah. year after I left that job um, in 2003, we got married and then I moved to California from New York. So so that was 12 years, almost 12 years ago. And um, originally I didn't in- expect to get involved with the ranch itself, but then I got very involved with the ranch because I just found it really fascinating and I, wa- I wanted to learn more about it. And so I, I actually never um, pursued an environmental law career after that point because I was so interested in the ranch and what we were doing here. So um, that was 12 years ago, and I've been working on the ranch um, almost kind of full time for about six years. I did it. And then for the last six years, we've had children now. So um, so I don't work full time on the ranch, but I help out a lot still. So I'm still very involved in the ranch. But so that gives me kind of the firsthand perspective. Yeah, I have to say I only eat the Nyman Ranch bacon. It's really, really good because I I trust the brand. I trust that I'm going to be getting healthy, sustainably raised omega-3 rich foods. So I just like the brand a lot. Yeah, Yeah, well, it's a it's a really unique um, it's a it's a unique product because of the way the animals are raised. So there's a lot of meat out there that has labels that say natural or things like that. But it still doesn't tell you anything about how the animals were actually raised and the whole concept behind Nyman Ranch is that it's a collection of farmers and ranchers who all use um, a very specific set of protocols and all of the animals are raised according to those protocols. So it really is all about giving the animal an opportunity to express their own behaviors and not giving them drugs and you know chemicals and antibiotics, not giving them hormones, whatever. And so they're raised... Um, basically in as natural as possible a way and as much like they would in nature. And then, um, and then try to always ensure that they're humanely treated all the way through their lives and at slaughter so that the whole time, um, their welfare is being considered. Yeah. So now my husband is the founder of that company, but we left that company several years ago, but I still very strongly support the products of, yeah. because I know, I know how good they are. I know the, the, the work, the good work that's going into those products. Yeah. It just breaks my heart to hear about these massive cattle productions or porcine productions where the animals are just being treated so horribly and are in these tiny little crates. And I don't want to eat that food for so many levels because I want to vote with my dollars. I don't want to support those kinds of of ranchers that are treating animals that way and plus that negative energy you could get eating that food and the toxins gmo grain etc so yeah i think um in in the um in the the pig industry there's kind of almost a universal practice of keeping the animals continually fined indoors um and they're they're always indoors. They're standing over. They're on hard surfaces. It's either concrete or wood, or in some cases metal uh, grating. But it's a hard surface. It's very hard on their bodies. They never have a soft place to lie down. They don't have any opportunity for rooting or anything they would be normally be doing in nature. And most importantly, they're continually standing in this really um, contaminated environment because they're very crowded and they're breathing in the fumes of their manure, which is actually gathered below the buildings and they're breathing in those fumes all day. So it's a, it's a really problematic environment for the animals. And I think it definitely affects the quality of the meat as well, even beyond the karmic aspect of it. And, and, and in poultry, 
in uh, turkey and chickens, it's a similar kind of situation, extremely crowded. The animals are always kept in these very crowded buildings. They don't have opportunities for fresh air or exercise or kind of engaging in any normal behaviors. And dairy, dairy is the same way. So you have the animals um, always in, in barns um, con- continuously from a certain point in their lives. With dairy, cows are usually outdoors when they're young animals, but once they actually start producing milk, they're kept continually in these barns. And they're in, again, they're on hard surfaces and they, they don't get opportunity for exercise. So there are huge problems in each of these um, sectors that relate to the welfare of the animals. Oh, sorry, we cut out there for a second. Um, So uh, you now believe that eating beef from sustainably and humanely raised uh, grass-fed cattle is actually environmentally friendly and healthy. Um, You know, you have no moral qualms with that, which, uh, you know, you mentioned in your book. Um, It it makes one wonder why you don't eat meat yourself, (laughs) because you're a vegetarian, correct? (laughs) Well, people have asked me that a lot. And I, I, I went, I became a vegetarian in college, freshman year of college, and largely because of a lot of the same kinds of concerns that people voice today about the treatment of the animals and the environmental um, conditions and so forth. And um, I start, so it's been a long time, it's been more than 25 years that I've been eating a, a totally vegetarian diet, not vegan. Yeah. Uh, there's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, big difference. <laughs> but, but, uh, yes, <laughs> incredibly important difference in my view. But um, but um, I've been eating a vegetarian diet for a long time. And I have to say, if I were now uh, in a situation, if I were to go back in time and I had all the information that I have now, I probably never would have become a vegetarian, mm-hmm. but I've been doing it for a long time and I'm very comfortable with my diet and I haven't had the desire to eat the meat. And that's the only real reason I can point to that. I'm not eating meat. We have two young sons. They're both under, uh, well, one just turned six and the other one is one and a half and we feed them meat. And that's totally, um, I totally want to do that. That's not my husband's, you know, trying to encourage me to do that. That was my decision. And, um, I believe it's really healthy food, especially for younger people and for older people. Um, those are the two times in our lives when we really need all that extra nutrition that you get from eating meat. So, um, uh, I, I can't really explain it other than just say I haven't had the desire to eat it. And if I ever did, I, I will. Yeah. <laughs> I would eat good meat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, I can see that when you've lived a lifestyle for so long. It's like, why change now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of, it's working for me. And so, um, but, but I, you know, my thing is I don't try to encourage people to eat meat. And I also don't, don't try to encourage people not to eat meat. But my point is to inform people's choices. And, um, and there's been, and especially my, my first book is called Righteous Pork Chop, and I kind of talk about all the sectors, and I talk a lot about the pork industry and the poultry industry and the dairy industry. This most recent book, Defending Beef, has focused on the cattle industry and the beef cattle industry, and in both of my books, I really just try to um, present people with the facts about how things are being done today and what the implications are, and I also try to... Um, rebuff some of the myths that are out there. And especially now, I feel like beef has gotten a very unsheer amount of criticism that is really not deserved. And so I'm trying to um, clear the air 
about both some of the environmental issues and some of the human health issues because I have kind of this unique background where I have worked on the environmental side and I've done firsthand ranching myself. So I know this issue really well. And so I wanted to add my perspective to the public conversation that public conversation that's taking place about beef. Well, let's talk a, a little bit more about vegetarianism. And a lot of people that become vegetarian, including myself, I was vegetarian for a couple of years. Um, I did it because I wanted to save the planet. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about how maybe why that diet isn't the best choice for those wishing to cut down on their you know, personal carbon footprint? Yeah, I mean, it's really actually it's frustrating to me because I am a vegetarian. So I kind of know, you know, I know a lot about vegetarian diet. And I also have been environmental lawyer. And I've been working firsthand on a ranch. So I kind of see all of the parts of this discussion. Um, And what I think is happening now is people have just reduced it down to this really simple idea that if you want to eat in an environmentally friendly way, you eat a vegetarian diet. Okay, well, there are a lot of problems with that. The first problem is just that there's a lot of food production that takes place um, that is very environmentally damaging that has nothing to do with meat. So I wrote, like I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times a couple of years ago called The Carnivore's Dilemma. And I gave the example in that of potato chips. I mean, potato chips are one of the most environmentally intensive foods because um, potatoes are, you know, you have to account all of the, um, resources that go into growing the potatoes, but then potatoes are actually also stored for long periods of time generally before they're used. And then there's a lot of energy that goes into the processing that takes place to make it into a potato chip. So when you end up with the end product of a potato chip, it's actually a very resource intensive food. Now people think if they just think meat is intensive, vegetables, you know, not intensive, that doesn't get into any of that kind of complexity. Um, so that's that's one point. Um, and then, you know, and then a lot of the foods that a lot of vegetarians eat, especially to replace uh, protein. So they'll eat a lot of like, tofu products or, you know, soy-based products or other kinds of um, sort of um, – you know, faux, <laughs> faux meat, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of those foods are quite intensive, again, in terms of the processing or even in terms of the production on the, on the farm side. But the whole um, food from, you know, from the moment that it started as a seed and then it's grown and maybe it's irrigated and it's, there's planting, there's plowing, there's harvesting, there's maybe drying, there's transporting. And then there's the whole creation of the processed food that you end up with. Let's say it's a veggie burger or whatever. Um, there's a lot of, um, there are many different inputs of energy and resources along that chain. And so Um, One of the most important things is just to keep that in mind that um, all foods um, have environmental footprints and that the footprint is is really variable depending on where and how it is raised and then how much um, processing takes place. And even storage, like I mentioned with the potatoes, a lot of the energy is actually the storage of the potatoes. People never think about that kind of stuff. So it's just a much more complex issue than people think. And then secondly, this is the kind of the other half of this – when you talk specifically about grazing animals, and so um, cattle are grazing animals, they have actually a really unique environmental role because not only um, can you raise them in a way that's less 
uh, resource intensive, depending on how you do it, but they can actually utilize ground. They can, they can be raised in areas where you can't do any other food production. So it's been, I did a lot of research on that, on that issue for both books actually. And there's quite a bit of, um, quite a bit of research that's been done on that. And, um, it's estimated that something like three quarters of the cattle of the world are being raised in areas where you cannot raise crops at all. And in the United States, about 85% of the cattle grazing that's taking place is being done on what they call non-tillable lands, lands where you cannot grow crops. Okay. So just right off the bat, that tells you, okay, this is actually not um, subtracting resources from our food system. It's adding resources from our food system. And then um, I make a really detailed argument in my book, Defending Beef, about when you have well-managed cattle, it's actually an environmental enhancement because you create um, really good grazing practices. When, when grazing is done the right way, um, you actually um, uh, foster the creation of soils and therefore all of the below-ground life that is so important for sustaining you know, sort of all of the life above ground, like all the plants and all the animals. And you also actually um, enhance the soil's ability to hold water. So you have a much better um, water cycle when you have good grazing. And I'm comparing this to pretty much any other form of land use, whether it's crop production or any kind of human development of the land. Um, having a well-managed grazing process on that land is one of the best things you can do ecologically for that land. And it actually um, enhances grassland ecosystems. So all of the wildlife, whether you're talking about wild bees, which do as much as 40% of the pollination of human crops. So even the vegetable crops and the fruits and the almonds and all those things, they depend on these um, open areas that are being grazed by cattle for habitat. And so they actually have an enhancement to vegetable and fruit crops and grain crops. Um, and then all of the, um, again, the soil organisms, the insect life, the, all the wildlife that you see, you know, whether it's snakes or whether it's rabbits or deer, whatever, um, they all need the grazing animals to keep that um, ecosystem functioning the way it's supposed to. Because there were, for millions of years, there were large herds of grazing animals on the world's grasslands, and those are pretty much gone today. So without the, the domesticated cattle doing that grazing, these grassland ecosystems are not going to function properly. So this is, this is kind of the big argument. This is a big picture argument that I make in my book, is that we think of, uh, you know, vegetables as net, uh, you know, positive or neutral environmentally. We think of meat um, in a negative way, but it's way more complex. And in fact, um, there are environmental negatives for fruits and vegetables. There are environmental positives for the meats. It really depends on how things are being done. Yeah, I listened to a TED Talk a little while ago. Uh, it was really revolutionary about how we need cattle grazing land and that creating cattle grazing lands has actually reclaimed some deserts because there's some parts of Africa and other parts of the world that are becoming less and less arid and turning into deserts because we need these grasslands to keep hold the water and create you know healthy soils that can grow crops, etc. And right. that cattle ranching is a very important aspect of of reclaiming some of these arid lands. Yes, that talk was done by Alan Savory, who has a really interesting background. He was a 
he's he's a wildlife ecologist by training and was working as a wildlife ecologist in he's originally from Zimbabwe and he's worked in various places in Africa but um he was uh actually practicing as a wildlife ecologist and working for the government and they were engaged in a number of these major reductions of animals on different lands and they were actually um reducing the sizes of uh, elephant herds because there were so many elephants. It was believed that there was too much impact on the land and they were also getting cattle off of the land. And he was seeing in various different places, whether it was the elephants, the wild animals, or whether it was the cattle, the domesticated animals, that when you remove the animals, the conditions actually got worse. And that got him, this was you know, four or five decades ago, but that put him on this whole pathway for his life's work, which is to reevaluate that assumption that people have had in sort of modern times. People have had this assumption for so long that um, the more animals you have, the worse the environment gets. And he started to show that actually the animals have an impact on the land that is essential um, for the proper functioning of the ecosystems. And so whether it was uh, the elephants or the cattle, he began to demonstrate that you needed those animals to have all of the various kinds of impacts. So they they do they they do a form of um, grazing or pruning of the vegetation with by eating. They actually um, the trampling is actually really important because it actually chops up um, the surface, which allows uh, moisture to enter into the ground. It also um, presses the seeds into the ground. It presses vegetation into the soil to get the um, the biological action on the vegetation. And so he showed how there were all these different impacts that these grazing these big animals, these big heavy animals, whether they're elephants or cattle, they were um, they were having these impacts on the ground, which were essential for the proper functioning of those ecosystems. So yeah, he's, he's someone I talk about in my book, Defending Beef, and I've met him a few times and I'm a great admirer of his work. Yeah. We need their poop for fertilization, right? Right. The poop <laughs> is another important part of it. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, a cycling of the vegetation through the animal's bodies. And that actually helps sort of helps um, the biological processes that all of the animals and plants depend on in those ecosystems. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, a little bit about grass-fed meat. You know, you're not suggesting people eat less meat, but you think they should be eating the right kind of meat, different meat. So what can you talk a little bit about grass-fed meats, et cetera? Yeah, well, there are um, – what we do on our own ranch is we raise the cattle entirely on – um, rangeland and and pasture. They're both basically rangeland means that it's an area that uh, you know nothing is ever done to it except for that it it may be grazed. And if you say pasture, it means it's more cultivated. So you may have, in some cases, you may have put seeds on it or done other things like that. And and so um, on our ranch, almost all of where the cattle are grazing is just rangeland, and there's a little bit of pasture as well. But they're basically just grazing. Um, and what's really interesting about grazing animals is that they can actually just harvest their own feed. They're, you're not bringing them any feed. You're not growing something and bringing it to them. They're just eating the vegetation that's there. On our ranch, they're eating vegetation that occurs there naturally and is um, and is irrigated naturally just from rainfall. We don't we don't irrigate our irrigate our land at all, and and we just basically just manage their movements. So. Um, 
they're in one pasture for a little while and then we move them on to another pasture and, and we're kind of monitoring where they are and how much feed there is. And that's, that's the only thing we really do as far as feeding them. We get, we provide them a little bit of hay um, for part of the year, but just very, a very small amount. It's really a tiny percentage of their diet, less than 1% of their diet actually. And what that ends up doing is it has a lot of benefits uh, for the animal. And it has a lot of benefits for the food that's produced. Um, the animal, because it's actually harvesting its own feed and it's moving around naturally, um, it is exercising. It's continually breathing fresh air. Um, it's getting uh, it's getting a kind of food that its body has evolved to eat, and so that keeps it a healthier animal. And it also just keeps you know everything's functioning properly in the animal. Um, so we have a, a, an extremely low rate of any kind of illness um, among our animals and our food um we believe is kind of the healthiest possible kind of food that you can produce and it's there's a lot of research that's actually been done to quantify uh the differences between uh, totally grass-fed beef and um conventional beef the the quantification of the different um minerals and fats and everything uh is not a it's not a huge um quantitatively there's not a gigantic difference between um grass-fed beef and conventionally raised beef um but there's a pretty consistent difference so um kind of in everything you look at you know whether it's the um whether it's the fat types the fat ratios whether it's the omega-3 content whether it's the vitamin e whether it's you know what anything you look at iron whatever calcium it's it's a little bit higher and kind of across the board with grass-fed beef and for me uh the most compelling difference is just that you know when you buy grass-fed beef you can be almost 100 percent certain i mean it's always good to do a little research and make sure but um pretty much all, all the grass-fed beef that I'm aware of, at least, um, they're not using any hormones in raising it. They're not feeding antibiotics. Uh, they're not giving it any other sort of unusual feed ingredients that you wouldn't want in your food chain. Um, things that are actually pretty common in the mainstream beef industry. So um, you're avoiding a lot of problematic substances and you know you're getting a healthy animal that ate uh, a healthy diet and that was living a healthy lifestyle that produces healthy food so to me that's that's a really important part of the difference let's talk a little bit about you know the the common assumption that saturated fats in meats increase heart attacks and other cardiac events. Um, in 2014, the New York Times reported a meta-study that found there was no evidence uh, between eating saturated fat and cardiac events. Um, why has the, the medical community still not come to the consensus um, about this relationship between saturated fat and heart disease? Because I have client after client whose cardiologist told them to eat Benacol and trans fats and avoid red meat, etc., and zinc that will give people healthy veins and we need saturated fats or in every cell in our body. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that whole issue of the fats, I think, I mean, my, my book Defending Beef is actually um, about 50% about the ecological issues. And then the other half of the book is pretty much about the, the health and nutrition side of this question, because there is this huge um, sort of 
popular belief, even in the medical and public health community, that red meat and beef in general and beef in particular is is problematic for human health and especially because of the saturated fat. So what I do is I sort of trace through in my book, I sort of trace through the history um, of this issue. And actually Nina Teichholz has written a great book called The Big Fat Surprise, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which goes into a lot of detail about um, about why that became the popular belief and how that really wasn't scientifically based. So um, basically, you know, there was kind of, um, there was this big rise in the middle of the 20th century. There was a sort of um, pretty dramatic rise in heart disease and other chronic diseases that was starting. And there were a lot of medical people around the world, epidemiologists and others that were looking for an explanation. And there were several different theories that were put forward. And one of the theories was that it was because of the saturated fat in the human diet. And in fact, um, there's one study in particular that is believed to have really kicked off the whole idea. And that was done by Ansel Keys and it was called the seven country study. And that kind of led down, you know, the whole medical and public health community. I mean, it's hard to imagine that one study could have been so influential, but it really began um, a whole trajectory of thought and of research um, that seemed to show that saturated fat was the problem. But as you mentioned, Wendy, there was this recent study, but that was one of quite a few studies um, that have now um, looked at these issues in more detail and with more understanding now. Um, and it's now realized that actually um, there are a lot of other issues that are probably much more connected to the shift in the general public health than, than saturated fat consumption. And that fat, saturated fat consumption might have no connection at all. Um, there's one of the, for example, um, a Harvard um, School of Public Health did a big study a couple of years ago that actually separated out the types of meats that people were eating. And it found that there was some connection between various public or, or, or human health concerns um, and processed meats. So things like deli meats and that sort of thing. Um, there was some connection. But when you took that out, and you know, and my own belief is that it's probably wise to limit consumption of, of processed meats because we don't know what it is, but there does seem to be a credible link there between some um, public, some human health concerns and processed meats. But when you took out the processed meats and you just had meat that was you know basically fresh meat, you know, a pork chop or a steak or even a hamburger, um, and you and you tried to connect that with the human health issues, there was no link at all. Um, and there have been several studies that have found that same, have had that exact same result. But I think that Harvard study is especially important because it was a big study. And obviously, Harvard School of Public Health is a very respected institution. So, and they don't have any, you know, there's zero connection to the meat industry. It was not a meat, fun, meat industry funded study. It was just a public health institution trying to get to the bottom of this issue. So, so my feeling is that today um, the state of the evidence is that there is um, there isn't good evidence to conclude that saturated fat um, is a human health problem. Um, what's much more likely is that um, the rise that we've seen in chronic diseases in the second half of the 20th century is more likely due to the existence of trans fats, which really started to be introduced in a big way sort of early 20th century, but especially kind of in the middle of the 20th century. 
And so it kind of actually tracks pretty nicely with the rise in a lot of the um, um, chronic health problems and then the increased um, consumption of both sugars and processed grains. So when you when you look at each of those um, issues, um, there's a much better link actually than there is to saturated fat. We've had a very dramatic increase in sugar consumption in the United States in the last 50 years. And we've had a dramatic, um, according to USDA research, um, grain-based food consumption. So that includes a lot of types of foods. But that has gone up by almost 40% in the last three decades. And so, you know, I always think, you know, the problem is not your, your steak. The problem is your muffin, <laughs> your cookie, your bagel, um, you know, things that are, um, and actually probably your donut, um, your French fry, things that are, um, what, I mean, one of the, one of the leading experts that I, that I cite in my book, who, who's actually one of the, um, he was the leading researcher on trans fats in the United States, Fred Kumaro, who's still alive, actually, he's in his nineties, but he did it for decades, was doing very intensive research on trans fats. And he says that saturated fat, unsaturated, it doesn't make any difference. What matters is when you get it to a super high heat and that oxidized the 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 molecules and so basically he says avoid you know deep fried foods whether it's like a french fry or a deep fried mushroom that's going to be a much bigger health problem for you and you know and he always he says he eats two um two eggs fried in butter for breakfast every day yes, <laughs> you know, yes. here's the guy who knows everything about um fats and and he thinks that eggs and butter are healthy foods mm-hmm. and i would agree yeah, and that's why I think it's better to cook with saturated fats like duck fat and beef fats and things like that, bacon <laughs> fat, because saturated fats don't go rancid under high heat. Right. Um, unless they're heated to a you know high degree. But they're much safer cooking oils than um, you know uh, vegetable oils and things. Right. A lot of people nowadays are starting to believe. Um, I talked about the, the sort of rise in the chronic diseases and how it doesn't track um, animal fat consumption. In fact, red meat consumption, I, you know, sort of in, in my book, I track all these statistics and I use I always use official government data because I don't want to be accused of using, you know, biased information. So I just use the, the official numbers and I show how um Red meat consumption was actually pretty stable throughout the 20th century. There, were, you know, it sort of went up and down a little bit. But the overall number, if you look at like 1900 and compare it to 2000, and just look at that century, um, the red meat consumption number is about the same. It's actually slightly lower. And then in the last few decades, um, uh, like beef and pork both went down quite dramatically. Beef consumption is down um, 22% over the last three decades. So again, you know, people have this idea in their minds <laughs> that, you know, there's this kind of rising consumption of meat and there were these rising consumption, uh, you know, uh, chronic diseases. And actually it, the data doesn't show that at all. The data actually shows rising chronic diseases, decreased consumption of animal fats, de- de- decreased consumption in total amount of saturated fat. And, um, and uh, and lower consumption of uh, dairy fat and red meat. So um, the numbers don't work, you know, just sort of immediately it doesn't make any sense. And then there's all this new um, clinical research and, and epidemiological research that has really tr- sort of tried to, un, um, you know, sort out this data a little bit better. And this idea that started in the middle of the 20th century that all these problems were due to red meat and saturated fats has not is not being supported by the data. So, um, so 
it's all being kind of rethought right now. Yeah, I agree. Oh, hi there. You're a little friend. <laughs> it's my son, Miles. <laughs> Sweetheart, I'm doing an interview right now. I can't talk to you right yeah, now. Yeah, my daughter likes to make cameo appearances <laughs> too when she's home. Okay, you need to be outside for about another 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> And so let's talk about cancer. Um, there's a lot of folks in the vegetarian world and other worlds are saying red meats linked to cancer. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe the, you know, acrylamide, ac acrylamides that can be formed from really high cooking heats or charring meat, so to speak. Right, exactly. So when you look at, again, when you look at the individual cancers and the individual foods that are being, you know, blamed for this, there's actually not a good link um, for really any of the cancers. And the the stronger link is is between the preparation. So especially, again, really high heats, grilling, and whether you're grilling vegetables or you're grilling meat, um, there is probably a cancer issue there. And so again, it doesn't mean, you know, you shouldn't ever grill a hamburger or grill a steak, but it probably means you shouldn't do it every day. And, you know, it's, it's something. Um, and, and so, um, I think that's, uh, something that's also being sorted out a little bit with the information is it's being figured out that a lot of it has to do a lot of the things that have been blamed on beef are now being discovered to be associated with common preservation or cooking techniques. So again, um, the nitrates, um, the superheating and, um, the, the compounds that are formed when you do the grilling. So, that's a very important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, when I go to like barbecue places, I'm from Texas. So when I go to get barbecue, you'd see this slab of meat that's charred black that's been cooked for 18 hours. Probably not a good idea. You know, right. you want your meat <laughs> lightly cooked, rare steaks. You know, you want your meat, I think, as lightly cooked as possible, least amount of cooking as possible. Yeah. And I mean, actually, you know, my dad, it's funny. Um, some of what my dad used to do, he passed away a few years ago, but he was very health conscious. And some of the stuff that he used to do um, turns out to have been incorrect. And some of it was right. And one of the things I remember that he taught us that I now realize was absolutely right is he said, you know, when the toast gets blackened, to just at least scrape that off and probably just throw that toast away, you know, and, and, you know, so it's really, it's not, um, it's not about, um, the beef. It's about that blackened, um, part <laughs> and whether it's toast, you know, or whether it's your French fry or whatever, it's just, um, probably not a good, it's, those are foods that you just should not eat very regularly. Yeah. 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 And let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the studies that vegetarians use to vilify meat. Um, and not you, but like some other vegetarians that they base the, like for me, when I decided to become vegetarian, I had read the China study and I thought, oh, wow, well, I, I, I've got to get these foods out of my diet. They are very, very, you know, cancer causing or, you know, health, not health producing. Um, but some of these, uh, studies that show that meat eaters, um, get more cancer, et cetera, they are not including the healthy user bias. Uh, these are observational studies, yeah. um, that are, you know, very, not very scientifically valid. They're just observational studies that uh, ignore the healthy user bias where people that eat meat also tend to have uh, very unhealthy habits. Like they smoke more, they don't exercise as much, they don't eat as many vegetables. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that and how one cannot base those observational studies and exclude meat from their diet based on those? 
Yeah, well, that's a, you just hit on a really key point, which I do talk about in my book as well, that we've, um, especially in the Western world, um, this idea that red meat is, you know, is, is healthfully problematic. Um, that's been around for a long time. So what's happened is all the more modern studies the last few decades of, as you say, it's sort of the observational studies, um, they're based on data of people who were, you know, sort of more or less health conscious. And there's kind of a coupling of behaviors, you know, there's a grouping of behaviors. So if you're someone who's really concerned about your health, you tend to be someone who doesn't smoke, who's more active, you know, who tries to get enough sleep. You know, you're sort of you're probably not out partying all night. You're, you know, you're not doing recreational drugs. You know, you're, you're sort of trying to do all the right things. And so what's been what's been happening in the last few decades, because red meat has been labeled an unhealthful food, people that are health conscious tend to avoid it. And so what that shows is so then you look at the research and they show people um, that are avoid, you know, with low levels of red meat and having better health outcomes. And so it's now we have a very problematic sort of population base to look at because we just really can't um, make the distinction what's causing this and what is sort of the result of other, you know, other things. And so, so um, I, what I think is important to look at because of that, you know, because of the, the that dynamic that now exists. I think it's really important to look at populations where you don't have that kind of an influence as far as the dietary choices. And that's why I think looking at traditional um, traditional populations is really important. People around the world that are eating red meat um, but have not sort of been influenced by that kind of idea. And also looking at historical data. So again, I talk in my book about sort of, um, you know, the, the beef consumption, the red meat consumption in 1900 um, being actually at higher levels than it is today. And yet heart disease, which claims 42% of people, I mean, that's 42% of the deaths are due to that today. It was due to, it's believed, I mean, the data is not as good, you know, from those days, but it's estimated about 8% of deaths were caused by heart disease in, in 1900, even though we had higher levels of beef and, um, and animal fat um, consumption and, you know, all red meats total were more, everything was greater. We consumed more lamb, we consumed more pork, we consumed more beef and we consume more dairy fat and more eggs. Everything was higher. Mm -hmm. And yet we had a lower level of, um, of, heart disease, significantly lower level. So the, to me, that historical data is really important. Um, looking at populations around the world, I mean, it, get, it, it you know it gets mentioned a lot, but I think it's really important to talk about the Maasai because their whole diet is, you know, based on beef and uh, cattle blood and uh, uh, milk. Those are their, you know, pretty much everything they eat is basically comes from cattle. Sounds and, delicious. And they, and, they, and, they, and they don't have any problems that, yeah. that we have, you know, and I cite, um, you know, I cite, uh, I talk about them in my book and they're, you know, they're talked about a lot. It's kind of an anomaly, but I don't really think they're an anomaly. I think they're a good example of how, you know, this is this, this explanation that so many people have accepted is, is really not credible. And then, you know, people talk about the, uh, the Inuit as another example, because people often think, well, the Inuit just eat, um, you know, fish and, and uh, they eat, uh, a lot of seafood, but actually the Inuit also eat a lot of red meat. They eat caribou meat. Um, they eat seal meat, other meat that is considered. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Sweetie, I'll be done in just a few minutes. Okay. You just, why don't you just rest over there for a few minutes or look at a book. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> so, um, so th- there's actually quite a bit. I mean, I I I, uh, I, I read an interview of of um, of a a woman who who was Inuit and was talking about the traditional diet as she had heard about it from her ancestors. And because today their diet is actually quite influenced by other factors, and actually they have a very high level of smoking within the Inuit com- community. So it's actually kind of hard to look at their diet today. But when you look at again historical data and um, just information about what they have eaten historically and traditionally, um, they also had very, very low levels of heart disease and they were eating a lot of red meat and tons of saturated fat. I mean, I think it's estimated that their diet was over 70% fat and a lot of that was saturated fat. So, um, it's, uh, you know, and, 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 and they don't eat any fruits or vegetables either. (laughs) So, I mean, I really believe in, you know, the healthfulness of fruits and vegetables, but they're a great example of how, you know, a lot of this stuff, um, that we've been told is absolutely the cornerstones of, of, of good dietary habits. You know, these things are maybe not as clear as, as we like to believe. Yeah. And I think bottom line, red meat is healthy within the context of a healthy diet. Right. And and I personally think red meat eaters have more fun. <laughs> I think it's when I was vegan, I was just a joyless diet. You can't eat this, right. you can't eat that, whatever. <laughs> um yeah, but I mean I actually really believe you know, it's even though I have um made a decision not to eat meat myself, I'm actually I eat a really wide diversity of foods. And one of the things that I really believe in in general is just the omnivory, the importance of eating a lot of different foods and a lot of diversity. And, you know, there's a statistic that um, I think I think I read it from Michael Pollan, but he got it from you know scientists. It's they estimate that that humans ate about eighty thousand different foods over the history of the you know of, over the world and different populations, and so that that gives you just an idea of the diversity of what people have been eating around the world, and you know just every kind of root and every kind of plant and every kind of fungus that you know th- that aren't poisonous, and animals, plants. I mean, humans, um, are, 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 are omnivorous and it's really to our advantage to, that we, that we do that, that we're able to do it. You know, I mean, there are, there are animals, you know, whether it's, you know, the koala or the panda or whatever that, or the monarch butterfly, they can only exist from one kind of food. And there's a huge problem for them, you know, when the food disappears or when it gets contaminated. And the advantage of humans um, the world over, I think it's kind of the key to our success, is that we've been able to make use of so many different kinds of foods and to, to nourish ourselves from those. So I think anytime a diet you know, has a lot of exclusions, there's probably, that's probably not a good idea. I mean, I, I, I believe in excluding, um, sugar to the greatest extent possible because I don't actually believe that that's something our bodies are, have evolved to, to really, um, exist with. I mean, it's something that is very new. Um, even, even, uh, even honey, which is one of the very few forms of really concentrated sweetness that humans got historically in our diet, was was quite limited. It was not available uh, very often or to very many people in very many places. It was a really um, special thing, and you got a little tiny bit of it. And then ripe fruits, which in most parts of the world, uh, you know, are only available for part of the year and for a little while. And then the rest of the time, people were eating you know, humans and their ancestors were eating things that were not sweet at all, not even naturally sweet. Um, and there was obviously no sugar at all. So, um, 
I think it makes a lot of sense to reduce and to avoid sugar as much as possible. But other than that, um, and then, you know, obviously anything that's chemicals or, you know, non, non-natural foods, I think are, are things to be avoided. But as far as actual foods, real food items that are from, you know, kind of in their natural whole form, um, I think the diversity is, is absolutely essential. Yeah, I agree. I think people can get food sensitivities and get really ill from eating the same foods every single day. A lot of people do that. They eat chicken and and vegetables, eat the same thing every single day. And people can eventually get sick from doing that. Our bodies are designed to eat a a diversity of foods. Right. Um, But let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the the global warming aspect of eating meat. Um, I know that I've, you know, felt guilty at times from uh, eating meat and potentially that's causing global warming. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how the raising cattle produces a lot of methane, which equals greenhouse gases? Yeah, well, I do. I actually have the the very first chapter of my book. I, I, I mentioned earlier that I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, which was actually on that very issue, um, because there was so much. There's been so much talk about um, meat production and a connection to global warming, and especially beef production. So. I wrote this op-ed for the New York Times called The Carnivore's Dilemma, and actually that was kind of the genesis of my whole book, Defending Beef. And um, in Defending Beef, what I do is I show that, um, first of all, depending on how you raise the animals, it has vastly different effects. And a lot of what is, you know, sort of been blamed on the meat industry are things that actually don't, are not inherently part of the meat industry at all. The number that people very often um, point to is a number from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. Initially, they said 18% of global warming gases were due to the livestock industry. And then they reduced it a couple of years later down to 14%, although a lot of people still use the 18% number. So they say that the world over, all the livestock together can, causes about 14% of global warming gases. Well, that's a pretty big number. Um, but actually, almost half of that number comes from deforestation in the developing world. So again, these are things that are not directly related to livestock. So if you are cutting trees down to grow livestock that's bad. I agree. <laughs> that should not be done. Um, but that has nothing to do in the United States, for example, with cattle. We are not importing um, very much beef at all. About 85 percent of the beef in the United States is is from the United States. It's domestic. And the, the, then we have a small amount of beef that's about about 15% of the beef is imported but almost all of that comes from Australia, Canada and Mexico and none of those are countries that are experiencing deforestation and there's no deforestation happening in the United States either. So again this idea that the deforestation is something that our beef consumption in the US is contributing to is just not factually based. So I mean when you look at the actual facts it's not factually based. So what I do is I kind of go through all that in my book Defending Beef. And then in the United States, when you're talking about, okay, is my beef contributing to climate change? You really have, so you have to look at the domestic numbers and those, we have the official numbers from the United States Environmental Protection Agency to use as the basis for that. And those, those numbers say that all agriculture in the United States causes about 8% of the global warming gases. That's all of agriculture. And that cattle production is about 2% of global warming gases. Now, 2% is not zero. It's a, it's an important 
number, but it's not what people think. I mean, people always have these crazy ideas in their mind, like, oh, it's I've heard it's like half of the global warming or something. It's just not, that's not the case at all. Those are numbers that, you know, they've been argued by certain people, but the official numbers are totally different from that. And there's no credible scientist in the entire world that accepts those 50% numbers that, you know, some of the sort of vegan advocacy materials will use. Um, So, so it's about 2% of global warming gases that are attributable to all of the ruminant animals. So that includes all the dairy cattle, all the beef cattle, all the bison, uh, sheep, all that added together is about 2%. And there's actually really good evidence showing that that can be reduced as well through good, uh, good management. Um, good, uh, good land stewardship and good cattle husbandry and good animal husbandry. So what, what I'm arguing in my book is that we need to improve the practices of how people are managing the animals on the land and just make sure we're continually doing everything we can to bring down those methane emissions. But I think that the most important thing is to realize that the numbers that people have heard are just way out of the mark as far as what's been scientifically proven. So what do you think uh, is something that we can do to kind of overhaul the entire food system to ensure that we're able to feed the planet in an ethical manner? Well, there's actually pretty good research. Um, I talk about it in my first book, Righteous Pork Chop, as well as in, in my latest book, Defending Beef. But there were, there have been analyses that have been done by really credible think tanks that have looked at For example, could you get rid of factory farming and could you put animals back on the grass and, you know, do do the sort of husbandry that I'm talking about to feed the world? And um, there was one study a few years ago that was done in Austria that showed a a very credible think tank there that um, that evaluated that specific question and that and found that you could actually um, put all the animals out on pasture and still produce the same amount of food that you produce today you would because you you'd get rid of a lot of um of the crop fields where you were grazing you know where you were raising the feeds that you transport to the animals and if you have um good management um you can actually use the land in a much better way they they also found that even if you converted entirely to organic um you would, which has lower yields in general, in some cases with different crops, not always, again, good management makes a difference, but, but you have a somewhat lower yield of organic crops. And so they said, okay, what if you also converted everything, you got rid of the factory farms and you convert to organic. And they found that fairly modest reductions in the levels of um, meat in the Western world would, would be, um, would be uh, enough to, continue to produce enough to feed the entire world. So, um, so it's not really true, this oversimplified idea that you need to, um, basically that you have to have these factory farms to feed the world or that you'd have to have dramatic reductions in, in consumption. You know, I'm actually arguing in defending beef that these cattle herds are, are really ecologically important. So in addition to the fact that they're producing nourishing meat and milk for people, but they're actually helping the functioning of the ecosystems and they're helping to sequester carbon in the grasslands. And so, you know, I argue that they ha- they're an ecological plus and they're producing healthy food. So if you got rid of all the cattle, you would get rid of all that that nourishment, all that protein, all that iron, all that wonderful meat and milk that's produced, and you'd have an ecological deficit as as a result. 
What? And the hides. The hides. Yeah. My, my son says, <laughs> my six-year-old son just added that the hides are important too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the cattle, um, you know, they're, when, when cattle are slaughtered, every part of their body ends up being used for different things. And so I talk about this in, in Defending Beef, actually, that you would need to replace, you know, all the all the materials that are used from their bodies, whether it's their hooves or their hides or their bones, their bones go into fertilizers. Their hides are used, obviously, for, you know, shoes and, you know, footballs and clothing and everything and soccer balls, chairs, you know, (laughs) and, and and so it's, it really is true. There's a huge, um, there would be enormous loss, um, to more even than just the food system if we got rid of cattle. But, you know, I, I just think there's no way it's going to happen and there's no way that it should happen. Yes. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, you know, I have a question that I like to ask all of my guests. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Well, I, it's, it's hard, you know, it's so hard to generalize and I think things are quite different in different parts of the world. And I've actually lived abroad. I spent one year living in Africa and one year in, in France and traveled around in different, in, in Africa and in Europe. And, um, I'm not sure if I would say this is true the world over, but certainly in the westernized world, what I've seen is that more and more people don't know how to cook. And that to me is, is, is almost like a crisis because, um, I mean, it is a crisis because not only does it mean that you're more and more reliant on snack foods and on processed foods and prepared foods, which have been shown over and over again to have, you know, lower nutrient levels, to have more salt, more sugar, uh, you know, more of the bad kinds of fats. Um, but also you're actually unable to provide yourself a healthful diet with in an affordable way because when you know how to cook you know how to make use of things that are in season you know how to use um, the less popular cuts of meat um, and you, so you can buy really high quality food um, when you know how to cook and then just put it together it doesn't have to be something fancy I mean it just is it's just the basic technique so so I've actually been saying I think the single most important thing we could do in the US for sure is just every American should learn how to cook and I do believe believe it should be part of the school curriculum. I know that's being done a little bit again. Um, but you know, when I went through the schools, that was a standard part of the curriculum. And then it just was, I think it was viewed as old fashioned and it was taken out. (laughs) And so now we have this whole generation of people that didn't learn how to cook from their parents because there wasn't that much cooking going on in their homes and they didn't learn it at school either. And so we're kind of handicapped as far as feeding ourselves healthy food. And Fortunately, I think there's this resurgence in interest in cooking and, um, and, you know, I think that's, that's a critically important part, but I think it should just be part of our educational system too. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to be healthy if you're not making some food at home because most restaurants do not care one lick about your health. They're using yeah. table salt. They're using soybean oil. They're using shortening and margarine, et cetera, these very cheap industrial products right. and uh, adding MSG that makes it taste better. A lot of people have an uh, MSG glutamate sensitivity and uh, you just, you just, you can't 
can't be healthy if you're only eating at restaurants because the the healthy restaurants are extremely expensive. The people right, that, that right. own the the chefs that will only use the finest ingredients. Those are very it's very expensive to go there. Um, yeah. So I absolutely agree with you. That's um, that's very important. I I took home economics when I was in eighth grade, and yeah. we were actually baking baking cookies. Yeah, <laughs> We weren't making. You no, know, we weren't always doing healthy food. I, I, I had the same class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no baking of chickens. But at least you got some idea of how to cook, and we're doing yeah. it. And I think, I think, um, you know, there's this movement towards having school gardens and I think just getting kids doing that kind of thing, having some connection to an understanding of how, yeah, they have a, they have a school garden at my son's kindergarten and they had one at his preschool too. So we're kind of fortunate. We live in a community where people are really interested in these ideas and and they make applesauce. Okay. (laughs) Okay. But they do, they do have really healthy food. And I think just having this understanding of taking a whole food, you know, growing it and then taking it and turning it into food. And one thing I've realized over the years is it doesn't have to be fancy preparation. You know, you can do really simple when you know just a few basic things. Um, one of the things that I, I tell people a lot that don't know very much about cooking and I tell them just a few basic things. One of the most important things is, you know, just have fresh lemons in your kitchen, have olive oil, you know, and just about anything, you know, whether you're going to take kale or green beans or anything, if you steam it and put a little bit of salt, pepper, olive oil, and fresh lemon juice on it, you're going to have a delicious food right there. And it's just so simple and it's really helpful. And so, um, you know, I think just having a few key techniques and a few key ingredients in your kitchen, and those are easily something you could learn in eighth grade. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? They're yeah. not doing it, but they could. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be so easy. I mean, you can steam up some broccoli in four minutes. I mean, it just doesn't yeah. take a, a lot of time. It really doesn't. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, where they can find you and get your book? Yeah. So, um, I have, uh, I'm actually mostly on Facebook and I have a Facebook page for defending beef and I have my own website, which is, um, nicolettehannyman.com just really simple website that tells more about me and links to a lot of my writings and um and then our our company which we now have a a new company called bn ranch and that is just eat like it matters.com Okay. Okay. Great. Can you order, um, like online ordering? You day? actually can't, unfortunately. Okay. Um, we did that for a while and it was a <laughs> lot of work, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> too hard for us. but you can learn, you know, you can learn things about what we do and anybody who's in the Bay area, um, can find where they can. And actually we are in a few places around the country, but basically for the most part, we're just in the Bay area. Okay. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was so informative and I love defending beef. All the time. We have to fight the good fight. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Wendy. I enjoyed being with you. And listeners, uh, you go to learn about more about me at live to 110.com. Learn about all about natural healing and detoxification and the modern paleo diet, etc. And thank you so much for listening to the live to 110 podcast.